Hello. So it's great to see you all again. Uh, I think probably most people have met me. Uh, right now I'm in New Zealand, uh, staying with my mother for a few days. And last time I was here in November and December, I talked about some of the themes that you'd been exploring in your group. But for this evening, Steve invited me to talk about a practice or a topic that I, I'm interested in. So I decided to talk about a theme that's actually been important in the development of my own practice for quite a while now. And also, as I've started teaching more and more around the world, it seems to be a theme that arises for almost all the students that I work with. And that's this theme of finding balance in the practice in terms of effort and enjoyment. Because in my own experience, especially in the beginning of the practice, these two words, effort and enjoyment, just did not seem to go together. And that's partly why I chose to talk about them now. Because in the start of my practice, it seemed that they were actually almost mutually exclusive. And then as I was teaching in different communities around the world, people would often say, well, how do I stay motivated in my Dharma practice? How do I maintain momentum? And I heard this question very, very often. And it resonated with myself because like anything we do over time, the motivation naturally ebbs and flows. It's inevitable that there will be times when the practice uh, perhaps doesn't seem worth it. So I started to explore this question in my own practice. And what I noticed when I investigated more deeply was when the motivation was low, it was because in some way I'd stopped enjoying what I was doing. So then as students would ask me, well, how do you stay motivated? I'll, I'd say, well, what, what aspects of your practice do you enjoy? And often the response was one of confusion as if it had never occurred to them that the practice could actually be enjoyable. So I don't know if that resonates uh, for any of you, but it took me a while of exploring the Buddha's teachings in a bit more depth before I recognized that actually the mental state of joy is a very significant aspect of his teachings. And perhaps... If you can think back to the beginning of your own practice, perhaps you did experience some joy. I think probably most of us have experienced what I think of as the honeymoon phase of the practice. Perhaps for some of you that might seem a long time ago, but if you can, cast your mind back and perhaps remember a time when Every time we picked up a Dharma book, it seemed like it magically fell open to a page with just what we needed to hear. Every time we sat down to meditate, it felt like some kind of an adventure. Everything felt new and fresh and exciting. And we couldn't wait to go on our next meditation retreat. And the downside of that, we probably, okay, I'll own up myself, probably bored our friends with our newfound enthusiasm, uh, started sending them podcast links and tickets to the Dalai Lama and the latest book by Pema Chodron and so on. So there is this phase of natural enthusiasm when we start the practice. 
perhaps some of you are still in it. So perhaps I should say, spoiler alert, it doesn't last. This honeymoon phase eventually wears off because of the truth that the Buddha talked about so often, the truth of impermanence. And often what happens is it seems to take more and more effort to maintain a regular meditation practice. And at times we might just stop doing it altogether. The honeymoon is well and truly over. And I like to use this metaphor of the honeymoon because in many ways our relationship to practice is a relationship. And just like with any relationship, any marriage or long-term partnership or deep friendship, if we want it to last, we need to be creative. We need to put in time and energy, but it can't only be about effort. There has to be enjoyment too, if that effort is going to be sustainable. So this marriage of effort and enjoyment is what I'm interested in exploring tonight. So early on in my own practice, the honeymoon phase wore off and it took me quite a long time to realize that somehow meditation had become a kind of chore. It had become just one more thing to fit in in a bit already busy day and just one more thing to judge myself for when I didn't manage to do it every day. And with hindsight, I recognize now that one reason it took me so long to recognize what was happening was that I had unconsciously believed that meditation was all about paying attention to the breath. Sometimes the body, but mostly the breath. And I got some degree of skill in um, being aware of the tiny details of the breath coming into the body and the breath going out of the body and the physical sensations elsewhere in the body. But I hadn't um, it didn't occur to me to pay attention to my mind and particularly to the emotions, the moods, the attitudes and the assumptions that were actually coloring my meditation practice. So that's one reason why I, when I'm teaching retreats, I really emphasize this question of looking at how are you relating to your experience or what's the attitude in the mind to what you're doing. Because otherwise we can get very short-sighted, literally just seeing the tip of our nose and not recognizing the attitudes that are building behind, that are um, driving the practice in ways that may be more or less skillful. So most of us have uh, what's called a, a negativity bias. I think many of you know the Rick Hansen's famous aphorism that our brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. And I hadn't realized this in my own practice until I went on one of my first nine-day retreats. And as most of you who've done retreats know, the first few days they're often a struggle with physical discomfort and all of the mental hindrances, aversion, restlessness, boredom, doubt, and so on. But I think it was on the third or maybe the fourth day that something suddenly shifted and I sat for a while in a state of real physical ease and mental lightness, even bliss. And I hadn't experienced anything quite that pleasant on retreat before. So it was delightful. 
And of course, again, because of the truth of impermanence, it wasn't too much longer before that all shifted. And I found myself back in states that weren't so pleasant. And I heard myself think, I knew it, back to reality. And what I wasn't seeing that what I was doing there was taking my unpleasant experiences to be more real than the pleasant ones. I was giving much more emphasis and validation to what was challenging and in a way almost discounting or ignoring uh, the pleasant experiences. So this was the first time I recognized my own negativity bias so clearly. And later on, when I started to work with meditators at IMS and in the prison system, I started to recognize that same bias in many of my students too, because of this hard wiring to pay more attention to what's unpleasant and potentially threatening than to what's pleasant. So just for that reason, it can be a interesting and useful training to consciously tune in to what's pleasant in your experience, moment to moment. And most of us do need to train ourselves to open up, to be aware of more of the full spectrum of our experience and not just the narrow bandwidth of what's unpleasant or painful or difficult. So it's true that we tend to have this biological uh, negativity bias, but then what often happens is that on top of that, we add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. And again, this was true for me when I started investigating this early in my own practice, I recognized this very basic assumption that the spiritual path was somehow supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was actually enjoying something, then it couldn't be spiritual. And I'm guessing that that came partly from my Christian upbringing, that sort of Puritanism that equates any kind of enjoyment with sin. But I also want to name that in some ways, the way the Buddhist teachings were presented didn't help either. So I think I may have shared this with you before, but the central teachings on the Four Noble Truths, that these four truths that lead to complete freedom of heart and mind. And that's how I understand these truths now, that they're about profound freedom. But early in my practice, the way I heard them as is the way they're usually translated, which is not such a useful translation, as you'll see in a moment. So the first noble truth is that there is suffering. The second noble truth, usually translated as there's a cause of suffering. The third noble truth, there's a way out of suffering. It can cease. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path which leads to the end of suffering. Now, I don't know for you, but for me, when I would hear the truths presented like this, this word suffering, uh, the usual translation of the Pali word dukkha, what I would hear was more like mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering. So the mind's inherent negativity bias would just hear the word suffering over and over and over. And I wasn't doing the sort of the more intellectual translation to recognize it's about the end of suffering. 
So I had this very unconscious assumption that it was somehow noble to suffer. That if my meditation was painful, uncomfortable, disturbing, then I was doing the real work. On the other hand, if my experiences were neutral or even pleasant, then I must be doing something wrong. Clearly, I'm not working hard enough or not going deep enough or not seeing clearly enough. And it is true that the Buddha warned us over and over again not to get attached to sense pleasure. But it's the attachment that's the problem, not the sense pleasure itself. But in my own case, I was so afraid of getting attached to enjoyment that for a while I didn't allow myself to feel any kind of pleasure at all. And what I didn't realize that this was actually a form of wrong view. The wrong view that pleasant experiences automatically lead to attachment. So in some ways I was attached to non-attachment. And if you've been through that phase of avoiding pleasure yourselves, when we practice from this kind of wrong view, it's actually very hard to maintain much momentum. And usually after a while, the practice just tapers away and disappears. So if you are finding it difficult to keep meditating regularly, or if you feel somehow stuck, uh, it could be useful just to investigate and see, is there some kind of underlying attitude that's getting in the way? And if you do happen to notice some kind of fear of enjoyment, it's important not to blame yourself because even the Buddha himself practiced for many years with the wrong attitude before he eventually understood that he needed to lighten up, as they say. So I think just to uh, give a little context of how the Buddha's own practice developed, uh, because for me it's been a powerful source of inspiration. So many of you are probably familiar with the story of his life, of how the Buddha-to-be was born supposedly as a prince, but he gave up his life of luxury to spend many years wandering around northern India, trying to find uh, the solution to his existential crisis. So he studied and practiced with most of the renowned teachers of his day, and he tried all of the different approaches to meditation that were on offer back then, most of which uh, were quite extreme by our standards, involving various ways of tormenting or even torturing the body, holding one's breath until almost losing consciousness, or eating so little food that, um, in the Buddha's case, he almost died of starvation. He was actually uh, on the verge of death uh, in constant pain when he finally recognized that he wasn't getting any closer to the freedom that he'd been so diligently seeking. So apparently he'd collapsed on the banks of a river and the text described that in the midst of this pain and exhaustion, he suddenly remembered a pleasant experience that he'd had as a young boy. And the texts describe how when he was, I think, about seven or eight years old, he'd been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, watching his father, the king, taking part in a harvest festival. And it was pleasantly cool in the shade of the tree, and the young boy's mind and body relaxed so much that he 
spontaneously dropped into the first jhana, which is a state of very deep concentration. And this memory of the pleasant experience of uh, being relaxed and concentrated like that caused the Buddha-to-be to start to wonder if perhaps he'd um, been approaching his quest for freedom in the wrong way. And he recognized that his fear of pleasure had in fact been an obstacle to freedom. The thought came to him, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? So he recognized that mental pleasure was what had been missing. And it's said that not long after this realization, he attained complete liberation, the complete freedom of heart and mind that are known as Nibbana or Nirvana. Now the emphasis here is on mental pleasure and specifically deep states of concentration. But the story does point to a relationship between pleasant physical experiences and pleasant mental experiences. Because if the Buddha, if the young boy hadn't been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, perhaps he would not have become relaxed enough to let his mind slip into jhana. And later when the Buddha was an adult, it was in his enjoyment of that memory that led him to full awakening. So it's not that the Buddha is recommending that we chase after pleasant physical experiences for their own sake, not at all. But when they arise naturally, they can be used to support our well-being. Because if the body is relaxed and at ease, then it's much easier to develop a calm and clear mind. And a calm and clear mind is necessary for the deepest insights to arise. And in the same way, when we're more relaxed and at ease, we're usually more able to relate to ourselves and to others with kindness and compassion. So we can learn how to use pleasant physical and mental experiences skillfully as a resource that leads us to progress along the path. So this brings me to the second theme that I wanted to explore tonight, which is the role of effort in the practice. And I think most of you probably know that right effort or wise effort is one of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, when we hear this word right, or phrase right effort, again, because of our unconscious negativity bias, it's very easy to hear it as being about blood, sweat, and tears. So this was true for me. Whenever I would hear this phrase right effort, I'd think, okay, grim determination. But what I wasn't understanding was that I was fixating on the effort part and not paying enough attention to the right part. So right effort is actually defined elsewhere in the teachings as um, being a fourfold effort. And the first effort is to make the effort to prevent unskillful mental states from coming up in the first place. In other words, to try and keep our minds out of the terrain of afflictive states like greed, hatred, delusion. So that's the first effort to keep us in away from unskillful states. 
The Buddha was a realist, though, and he knew that at times our effort wouldn't be strong enough, wouldn't be a match for the visiting so-called defilements. So the second great effort is that when those unskillful mental states have arisen, that we make the effort to release them, to let them go, to abandon them. So these first two efforts are about working with unskillful or, or afflictive mental states. And the more we do this, the more effort we put into releasing them, over time with practice, we find ourselves less and less caught up in these afflictive states. And when the mind is relatively free of them, it's almost as if there's literally more room for the skillful states to arise in their place. So then as we start to become more and more familiar with skillful states, we develop the third and fourth forms of right effort. So the third one is to make the effort to help unarisen wholesome mental states to arise. And then when they have come up, the fourth effort is to help them prolong and develop and deepen. So the arc of these four efforts is to shift away from the unskillful states into the skillful state. And if you look back over the arc of your own practice, whether it's been weeks or months, years or decades, I'm pretty confident that overall, overall, you'll see a shift from the mind spending less time in really tortured, afflictive states and more time in skillful states. So I'm not saying that we're never again going to be subject to anger or grief or self-judgment or anxiety. But over time, I think we can notice that when these uh, visiting defilements do visit, they tend to have less intensity than they did in the beginning of our practice. They tend not to stick around for quite as long and the gaps between them arriving tend to get longer. Is that true for people? You recognize that in your own practice, in the bigger picture? Just raise your hand if it seems like it's generally true. Okay, so most people have some sense of that. And yet again, because of our uh, negativity bias, I think we tend to focus on the inadequacies in the practice, the areas where we fall short, we don't measure up and so on. So in all of this, I want to keep highlighting that the Buddha put so much emphasis on cultivating and maintaining skillful states of mind, qualities such as kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. Some of you may know those as the four Brahma-Vihara practices. Other skillful states include the seven factors of awakening, which some of you may know, be familiar with mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Joy is also is a factor in the development of the jhanas, those states of deep mental absorption that I mentioned earlier. So you may have noticed that this theme of joy appears in many of the lists of the key teachings of the Buddha. And there are different flavors to this quality of joy but it's always a wholesome state and one that the Buddha really encouraged us to cultivate. 
And having said that, for many people, this can really feel like a going against the grain practice, as they say in the Zen tradition, because of this conditioned tendency to think that enjoyment is somehow unspiritual. And often, many of us have some pretty deep conditioning around unworthiness, perhaps even a sense that we somehow deserve to suffer. So as I mentioned earlier, in the Buddha's own life, he practiced these different forms of extreme austerities that were forms of physical torture. These days, we tend not to have that kind of physical self-torture. But what is quite common, as uh, Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, is a kind of psychological self-torture. So many people are very hard on themselves. They find it very challenging to practice kindness and compassion towards themselves and can tend to see any kind of enjoyment as a form of weakness. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, the four Brahma-Vihara practices, the third of these four is mudita, usually translated as sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. And that practice is an invitation to very deliberately incline the heart and mind in this direction of joy, of delight. And perhaps again, because of our cultural negativity bias, I've noticed that of the four Brahma-Viharas, it's mudita, or appreciative joy, that tends to get the least attention. So if you go on Dharma Seed, you can find 10 times as many talks about kindness and compassion as there are on mudita, or appreciative joy. So traditionally, this practice is done by reciting phrases. Uh, some of the ones I've seen other teachers use are things like, I'm happy that you're happy. May your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness not leave you. May your good fortune shine. So these are just some traditional phrases that are used by Western insight meditation teachers. And you may have noticed that the instructions are to not include oneself in appreciative joy practice. So usually this word mudita is translated as appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, and it's traditionally taught as joy for another person's happiness, not for our own. And I got curious about this because everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings, we're invited to not make distinctions between ourself and others. And yet here in this one practice, we're told, leave yourself out. So I asked a Pali scholar what this word mudita means, and he said originally it just meant gladness, simple gladness, and there was no sense of it being towards another. And in the way that this practice was taught in the time of the Buddha, the instructions were to just connect with a sense of gladness in one's own heart and then radiate it all around the world in every direction to all as to oneself. So as far as I can tell in the original teachings, there was this invitation to include oneself in the development of appreciative joy. And I think I may have shared this uh, practice with some of you when I was uh, in Bellingham a couple of years ago as part of our Brahma Vihara weekend. The teachings that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama 
And I found these, uh, this sutta at about the same time as, as I was exploring whether or not mudita could be practiced for oneself. And in the sutta, Mahanama went to the Buddha and basically said, you've given all these teachings for lay people, uh, for monastics, but how about giving some that are suitable for lay people? And the Buddha said, okay, what you should do is every day contemplate six different things. And if you do this regularly, it will lead you to Nibbana, to liberation. So to me, that was quite a startling claim. And the six things that um, Mahanama was advised to contemplate every day were the, first, the good qualities of the Buddha, second, the good qualities of the Dharma, third, the good qualities of the Sangha. And then these are the two I found most interesting, the Mahanama's own generosity, and then his own good qualities, his own virtues. And then finally, the good qualities of the devas or the angels. So these fourth and fifth qualities, the idea of consciously every day connecting with your own generosity, your own good qualities, your own virtues. When I first read it, there was a little bit of a recoil, even at the idea of doing that. So I decided that I would take it on as a practice. And when I first started doing it, I thought, well, I'd better be careful because maybe it's going to make me conceited. And I was amazed at first how difficult it was because I grew up in England and in New Zealand and in those countries, there's a lot of social pressure to not blow your own trumpet. I think in the US you say, don't toot your own horn. And in Australia, where I also do a lot of teaching, they have something called the tall poppy syndrome. The um, poppy that sticks too high gets its head lopped off. And in Japan, apparently, they have a saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So just to point to, you know, in almost every society, there's this idea that you can't go anywhere near the terrain of recognizing your own good qualities because pride comes before a fall. And it's true in the Buddha's teachings where um, we don't want to get conceited. But often in the West, we have the opposite. We have the less than syndrome. So this training in connecting with our own good qualities can be a very powerful antidote to not getting conceited, but also not um, you know, getting caught in inadequacy or unworthiness. And as I said, when I started trying to turn towards and acknowledge my own good qualities, I was at first afraid that it might make me feel special in some way. But I actually found that the opposite was true. That when I had just a more natural sense of the whole of who I was, including some of my strengths, I was much better able to appreciate the good qualities in other people. I didn't get so caught in comparing mind. I felt more of a sense of ease and kinship and appreciation of them. The second unexpected aspect of this practice was that the more I looked at what may seem like my own good qualities, I realized they didn't actually belong to me at all. They were instilled in me, some from my parents, from my teachers, from my friends from the Buddha's teachings, from meditation practice, my Dharma teachers. So 
So there are all these different ways that these conditions had allowed good qualities to arise. And I couldn't really take them on as being me or mine. And yet at the same time, when I had a sense that they were present, I felt more at ease and happier and clearer. So if you'd like to give it a try, you know, you could either do it as a formal meditation practice or even just informally at the end of the day, perhaps as you're lying down and going to sleep, just to reflect on any experiences you had during the day when perhaps there was some generosity or some patience or some truthfulness or some kindness or some equanimity or balance of mind, whatever it might be. So those are just a few reflections on this uh, ways of balancing effort and enjoyment in the practice, hopefully, so that it can be more sustainable in the long term. So thank you for your attention. I'd like to really just take some time to hear from any of you, any reflections about anything I've said and how any of you uh, find this balance between effort and enjoyment in your own practice. So over to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.